This is The Guardian. I'm Gabrielle Jackson, and this is The Full Story, Newsroom Edition, where Guardian Australia's editors discuss the news of the week. Australia's independent movement is gaining traction. As the next federal election approaches, many coalition seats face serious, well-organised challenges. Motivated in part by the Liberals' lack of action on climate change, the local challenges have been met with fierce coalition pushback. But who are they? What do they stand for? And can they win? Today, I'm talking to Editor-in-Chief Lenore Taylor and Head of News Mike Tisher about the climate-based challenge to Liberal seats. It's Friday, the 25th of March. Good morning, Lenore. Morning, Gabs. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. So there are a lot of independents running in the federal election this year. Do we know if there's a reason for this, Mike, and is there a theme that's uniting them? So is there a reason for them all coalescing at this time? Yes, there are several reasons, I think. One is that there's a pattern to follow, which was set first by Cathy McGowan in the seat of Indi. We know the main political parties are going to throw everything at Indi. And I say, bring it on. And followed by her successor, Helen Haynes, in the same seat. Now it's time to pass on the baton. Helen Haynes is an excellent candidate and she's ready to go. Where a grassroots campaign began largely, although obviously not entirely, uh, run by women. First of all, I want to really thank the 200 people who came out in such numbers on This Saturday. specific group are ones who are broadly united around three main themes, I think, which are first and foremost climate change, secondly integrity in politics and sort of demands for a federal ICAC, as it's called on the New South Wales model, and perhaps thirdly the treatment of women it's been mostly targeted, in fact, almost entirely targeted in, in Liberal seats, and it now has, in a lot of cases, some serious funding behind it. And I think it's fair to say that it's a more serious challenge than it was at the last election, and the Coalition are worried about it. Well, what is different this time? Do they have a better chance this time around, Lenore? Yeah, I think they probably do have a better chance. In the last election, it was only Zali Stegall and Helen Haynes who won. I mean, Andrew Wilkie was there already. The other thing that happened in the last election, and which is a vagary of this kind of political strategy, is that they were not in a balance of power position in the lower house, which is what gives independents, you know, their maximum clout. You know, if you think back to Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor, who, you know, alongside Adam Bant and Wilkie allowed Julia Gillard to form government in 2010, that gave them an enormous amount of clout. So this time they started earlier, they have more money. Some, although not all of them, are funded by Climate 200, which is a sort of fundraising group that's been set up by businessman Simon Holmes Accord. And the coalition has uh, 76 seats in parliament, so Labor needs to win eight seats to govern in its own right. So the independents are sort of figuring that if they win, say, three seats or four, then there's a reasonable chance that there might be a minority government of one major party or the other and that they will be in then in that box seat in, on the cross branch, presumably with Adam Bant and Wilkie and Bob Catter. They're running in more seats, so there's 
at least 21 who you could loosely categorise as this type of independent and interestingly 19 of those 21 are women. I think there's probably maybe five seats, the six seats where they're the main opposition and there's sort of five where I think they have at least at least a chance. And what are those five seats and who are the candidates running? Well, one is Wentworth, Malcolm Turnbull's old seat, where Allegra Spender is taking on the incumbent Liberal Dave Sharma. Allegra Spender has launched her campaign to win the federal seat of Wentworth. You know, Allegra Spender is the daughter and granddaughter of Liberal politicians, the daughter of Carla Zampatti. She's a businesswoman. She used to work at McKinsey's. I'm continuing to uphold the values that my father and my grandfather stood for and that Wentworth has always stood for. Today's Liberal Party is not the same party of my father and my grandfather. She's very hard for the coalition to paint as some sort of, you know, radical lefty trying to sneak into into the leafy (laughs) suburbs of Wentworth. I am sick of the false choices that the parties have created. You can be pro-environment and pro-business. And I saw... And that the conversation did one of those electorate polls, uh, I think quite recently, um, where they had Sharma was leading Spender by just 51 to 49, two-party preferred. Now, there's a caveat, those polls aren't particularly accurate, but I think she's putting on a really good show in that electorate. So that's one. Then there's North Sydney, where Trent Zimmerman, the sitting MP, is taking on Kylia Tink. As North Sydney's independent, my presence in Canberra will ensure our community's true voice is heard. There is Kuyong in uh, Melbourne, perhaps less likely, where the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg is under challenge. She's endorsed by Kuyong Independence and Voices for Kuyong. Her campaign is partly funded by Climate 200. And then there's Goldstein, also in Melbourne, where Tim Wilson is being challenged by Zoe Daniel, the former ABC journalist. What is the role of government if not to lead? But right now, our government is actually a roadblock. Our government, our two-party political system is stalled. I mean, I think Goldstein is interesting. I think Zoe Daniels got quite a high profile there. And I actually think Curtin could be a sleeper in all of this. Experience. That's where Kate Cheney is taking on Celia Hammond. Celia Hammond took over that seat from Julie Bishop. Um, there are endless reasons not to do this, and there was really only one reason to do it, and that's because it really matters. This is really important. Yeah. Kate Cheney's another really well-known local with lots of Liberal antecedents. Her uncle, Fred Cheney, was a Liberal minister. Her grandfather was a Liberal minister. Her father is West Farmers chairman, Michael Cheney. And Celia Hammond is uh, quite uh, sort of on the conservative side of the Liberal Party and did at one point suggest that she wasn't sure to what extent or the extent to which humans were responsible for global heating. And that is a really big issue in that electorate. So I think Kate Cheney's getting that kind of, you know, popular momentum. I saw this week that Tim Minchin came out backing her. I mean, it's a seat with a 13% margin, which seems insurmountable. But, you know, when Karen Phelps won Wentworth after Malcolm Turnbull's resignation, there was a 20% swing in that by-election. So, you know, it's not unthinkable in Curtin. Sort of oddly, in a way, the the bigger the margin in some ways, the more likely they are to win Mm. because they have to come second over Labor uh, to have even a chance of gaining Labor and Greens preferences. So if if Labor has a high vote, then that uh, sort of minimises the chances of an independent coming through in some ways. 
The Liberal Party has accused these independents of actually being a party, of being just a front for Labor and the Greens. How have the independents responded to that, Lenore? Well, I think in the first place we need to have a look at what the Liberal Party is saying and whether it makes sense. I saw the Liberal Party Federal Director Andrew Hurst emailed his party members recently saying that, you know, these independents were left-wing independents just intent on putting Labor into power. They were really agents of the Labor Party because they're only targeting government seats. And, you know, they're despite campaigning on transparency, they refused to reveal who they'd support in a hung parliament, which is, you know, trying to unpick all of that is difficult. But in the first instance, surely stating who they'd support in a hung parliament would draw their status as an independent into question, not refusing to say who they'd support in a hung parliament. And I think in a way the independents are kind of benefiting from the fact that the major parties, and I'd have to say a lot of commentators as well, just can't quite get out of the mindset that there are only two major parties or, and, you know, possibly the the Greens, you know, to the left of Labor who get to call the shots. If you start from where these candidates are starting, which is actually reflecting quite a view in their electorates, they want to influence the policies of the major parties because they're dissatisfied with the major parties, in particular the Liberal Party and in particular on climate. So that makes it makes perfect sense in that regard to target Liberal Party seats where you might have a chance of winning and then you might have a chance of being in that balance of power situation so that you can um, influence the Liberal Party to have a better policy on global heating than they do already. And presumably, if they did find themselves in that position, when they were negotiating to figure out who to support to form government, they would also make demands or requests of Anthony Albanese if Labor was trying to form government to improve their policies. So I think it's a very hard argument for the for the Liberal Party to make because it doesn't take into account what the candidates are doing it for. Mm. I think you can see that in the sort of broad range of the things they've tried to counter the candidates, which mm. this kind of a kind of scattergun approach. Obviously that that idea that they're not independent is the main thrust of it. But there's a story in the Australian saying the Liberal Party had launched a website to attack them, although it didn't link to the actual website, which could you find I the website? Could not, I can't could find not it. Find I couldn't website. find it either. <laughs> Maybe they're gonna have a website and the Australian was pre-informed. They were quoting authoritatively from the website, which said uh, that media reports had noted that some of the people active in the movement had also been active in in Extinction Rebellion, throwing around questions about comparing mining with the Holocaust. Dave Sharma in Wentworth has sort of accused them of targeting only diverse Liberal candidates, um, pointing out that he's the only Indian Australian in Parliament, that Josh Frydenberg is Jewish and that Trent Zimmerman and Tim Wilson are gay. So I sort of think their actions belie their statements. He's also said that if they win, it will drive the Liberal Party to become more like the Republican Party in the US because they're, most of the Liberals under threat are on the moderate wing of the Liberal Party. They just like seem to be really casting around for something that will stick um, mm, around that mm. broad theme of they're not really independent, but they are really independent. I mean, uh, I think that's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the main problem. I mean, they, they, they do, yeah. they, they're not, they have their differences among them as well. I mean, there's been some quite, I wouldn't say bitter, but there've been some quite spiky disputes. In some seats, there are two independents standing. One, they've had differences of opinion on whether they should be funded by Climate 200 or not. It's a really hard one for them to stick that they're not actually independents. 
My favourite attack was the Daily Telegraph unleashing their best investigative bloodhounds who discovered that two donors to Allegra Spender had also once previously donated to GetUp and therefore um, therefore, it wasn't really clear what the therefore was. That was the whole story. It's interesting, the donations, transparency stuff, right, because on one hand they are campaigning to have more integrity in politics but on the other hand, the Liberal government has been in power six years. If they really wanted to know who was donating to political candidates, they could have made the law so that they would know. They could have changed the donation law. That's true. Although I think we do have to say that there was a story, a revelation about Zali Stegall, um, independent Zali Stegall, who beat uh, Tony Abbott and a donation she received from the family trust of a coal company director. And she didn't declare it because she received it in a whole lot of individual pledges that were below the donation threshold, but they added up to being above the donation threshold. And I think that was a really damaging mistake for someone campaigning on cleaning up politics. What you say, Gabs, is absolutely true. You know, if the Liberals Party were really concerned about being able to use a loophole like this, they would have closed the loophole. But nevertheless, I do think that looked bad and was bad for Zali Stegall when that came out. Mm. And what do we know about Climate 200 and are there any conditions attached to that funding for independent candidates? So there are broad conditions. There are candidates taking Climate 200 funding to subscribe to their broad values, as we mentioned at the top, but only in a very broad sense. They're not, they don't have a policy platform as such. It's hard to argue that they are a party in any sense because the value statements that they're being asked to sign up to are very general. And that's the reason they're standing, right? Because they, they actually agree with that in the first place. So it's not in any sense something that's being imposed from the top down by, by Simon Holmes Accord or climate 200. I mean, they also have access to more, well, they've got access to funding, which is hugely important. And there's been statistics showing that they're doing a lot of spending. Some of these candidates are spending a lot on Facebook advertising, like targeted Facebook advertising already, which is presumably to sort of raise their profile in their electorates really quickly ahead of the poll. But they've also got access, there's sort of a loose access to a legal and polling and campaign strategy support, which are the things that independents traditionally don't have and really hobble them in comparison to the major parties. So I think that's why particularly the Liberal Party is so concerned that these independents are, you know, quite professional about it and it's going to give them a much better chance. And I think that, that Facebook funding is quite interesting as well. There have been a few stories about how much they're spending on Facebook and comparing it to how much the sitting MPs are spending, which in some cases is quite a lot. Allegra Spender in particular has spent $70,000 on Facebook in the past three months, the Herald has reported. Uh, Monique Ryan, who's standing against Frydenberg, has spent a similar amount over the past three months, 74000 And that's a lot by comparison with other candidates, but it's not it's a lot. It's a lot of Facebook advertising, though. It's a lot of Facebook advertising, mm. but it's not a lot in the grand scheme of election advertising compared with Clive Palmer. It's interesting that they're focusing so much on uh, online advertising because that is another reason why these kind of campaigns are more possible now that mm. by organising online it's relatively cheap compared with the old-fashioned TV, billboard, newspaper advertising in elections and, and they think that's a way that they can mount a more effective campaign with admittedly a large amount of money but they're trying to run a lot of candidates as well so they think it's effective election spending and it will be interesting to see if that proves to be true or not. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, Mike. And also, you know, it's quite effective way of raising your profile, but it's and getting in first to sort of define who you are because they know that there's going to be a lot of money coming from the major parties attacking them as a group and probably attacking them individually in the campaign proper when it starts, and that that will involve TV and radio advertising, which they're not going to be able to afford to do as much of. There has also been some scare campaigns about more independence in the lower house will lead to chaos and an ungovernable parliament. What do you say to that, Lenore? I would say that I think the uh, Gillard government after the 2010 election functioned fairly effectively, whether you agreed with the policies that were passed or not. That crossbench worked effectively with the Labor government to get things done. I mean, that parliament passed workable climate legislation, which is something that eluded many other parliaments in the last decade. So I think that idea that it will be chaos comes from that same set viewpoint that only a major party with a major party's internal functions can deliver effective policy. And I think there's reason to think that, in fact, a responsible group of independents scrutinising thing can actually lead to better policy outcomes. It depends on who the independents are, how sort of aligned their views are, and how they discharge their responsibilities. But, you know, you look at the Senate where... Governments always have to deal with minor parties, almost always. And oftentimes I think you could argue that there are quite good outcomes from that process. And also on the particular issues that they're campaigning on, it's hard for the government to argue that, you know, what we've seen until now has been, right, it may not, may not have been chaotic. Uh, I mean, the scenes in question time are chaotic, but, but it's been particularly ineffective on climate, on integrity. Yeah. <laughs> On women's issues, it's been, you know, they don't have a good record to put up in an election against candidates who are making that their main platform. And you could say in that parliament, having to deal with the crossbench actually gave Julia Gillard sort of ammunition to take on parts of her own party. You know, it gave her a way of working around internal Labor Party dysfunction. A Liberal Prime Minister could equally do that. You know, we know there's been a factional deadlock in the Liberal Party on these issues for a really long time. Theoretically, a Liberal Prime Minister could similarly point to a balance of power holding crossbench as a reason to break that internal deadlock in the Liberal Party. Mike, what do we know about the people volunteering for these campaigns? So it's anecdotal evidence, obviously, but from the evidence going right back to the Cathy McGowan campaigns in Indi, the evidence seems to be that there's a mix of disaffected Liberals, previously people who've mostly voted Liberal before but are unhappy with various aspects of their policies, mostly climate, and people who have previously not been involved in politics very much at all but have been energised by these campaigns. You could also say perhaps in some of the seats where they're very safe Liberal seats, as many of these seats are, there may be Labour and Green supporters who kind of despaired of ever having a candidate to back who want to get involved. From interviews that we've done, stories that we've written, people we've interviewed, there does seem to be a genuine groundswell of people who are energised by the prospect of having someone to vote for who they really believe in and could get something done that they have not seen from their from their Liberal member for, for many years. Whether they get elected or not, that feels like a very positive development mm. and something that should be encouraged. Do you think that groundswell is enough to change politics this election, Lenore? 
is highly uncertain. It's uncertain in each of the electorates. It will require, you know, the the candidate to come second and preferences to flow their way. If there is a sort of a big swing to Labor, then it becomes less likely that they will be in that balance of power position and that even if they if three or four of them do get elected, you know, they may they may not have the clout that they're hoping to have. But, you know, if three or four of them get elected, even if they're not in a balance of power position, I think that gives the major parties, and in particular the Liberal Party, a bit of a wake-up call, a bit of a pause for thought if they start losing those very safe blue ribbon seats to these kinds of candidates. But in terms of what those candidates want to achieve, there are a number of hurdles and a number of uncertainties before they know for sure, you know, whether they're going to achieve anything at all. It would be an absolutely fascinating parliament if there were, say, half a dozen altogether, including Haynes and Stegall, plus maybe the Greens have hopes of also picking up one or two more lower house seats. It would just make for a completely fascinating parliament. Mm. Yeah, because in a way this this is mirroring for the Liberal Party what the Green, the challenge mm. the Greens have been presenting in safe Labor seats to Labor for some time now. It would be really interesting. Next, carbon credits and desperate dispatches. Now we come to what we can't get out of our head. Lenore, what is it for you this week? Uh, we ran a story last night and it was also reported on the 7.30 report. It's uh, Professor Andrew McIntosh who has held for a very long time very responsible positions uh, for the coalition government in overseeing the carbon market. So all of the offsets, the direct action fund buys offsets for avoided deforestation and pays farmers for not cutting trees down and soil carbon and all of the things that have been integral to the coalition's direct action climate policy. And, you know, he's a very methodical and considered person and a a true expert in this area, which is wildly complex. And he has now come to the conclusion that over time, most of the carbon credits that are being approved and that we as taxpayers are paying for and that businesses are buying don't represent real or new cuts in greenhouse gas emissions and that the whole program is largely a sham. It is incredibly concerning. It's concerning because offsets are an important part of climate policy, Um, but I think his warnings should be taken seriously because he's a serious person and he's in a position to know. Mike, what was it for you? Uh, So mine was an incredibly grim but incredibly important story, I think, of two journalists from Associated Press who had escaped from the Ukrainian city of Mariupol, which has been all but destroyed by uh, in the Russian invasion. I mean, there's so many terrible details in this story. It's just an incredibly graphic first-hand account of what it's like to be in a war situation, which is really distressing. But bit I took particularly out of it was how important information is in a situation like this. Uh, it's not just about safety and food and water and medical treatment and all the other kinds of things you'd normally think of in a in a war situation. But they talked about how doctors and other 
frontline people, uh, you know, soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers would give the journalists access to their very scarce internet resources, would want them to tell, tell their stories, partly because people need to know what's going on in other parts of the country. Individuals want to know about what's happening to their families who are trapped in, in the city or to, to get information from, out of the, from, from the city outside. And just the importance of information to to the people who are undergoing this terrible situation was really compelling and, uh, I don't know, made you think about the importance of journalism generally, but um, just a really a really fascinating, if incredibly grim, insight into what's going on there. And the fact that the Russians clearly understood that as well because they came exactly. looking for those journalists in a hospital yep. because they didn't want this information to get out. It was an incredibly grim story, but well worth reading. Thank you so much, Mike and Lenore, for joining us today. Thanks, Gabs. Thanks a lot. That's it for today. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and Camilla Hannon. Executive producers are Miles Martignoni and me, Gabrielle Jackson. Laura Murphy-Oates will be back with you on Monday and we'll see you then.